Amen. To, to present every man complete in Christ. That is our mission and our destiny. The end for which we were created is nothing other than to be transformed into the image of Christ. He has become like us, that we might become like him. We are to become, as C.S. Lewis said, little Christs. It is the great adventure of life, growing into more and more the image of our Lord. So the vision of human maturity is not each person becoming the best version of themselves, but becoming someone else altogether. God does not come into our lives to refine our good qualities and to downplay our bad ones. He comes, rather, that we might become a new creation, something else, something new. The old man or woman, the scripture says, is crucified with Christ, and a new human is raised up with Jesus. It is, not, it is no longer I who live, we can all say with the Apostle Paul, but Christ who lives in me. God's purpose in our lives, the direction he is leading us, and the final end point to which we are headed is that we might come, each and every one of us, to resemble his Son in every respect, morally, being sanctified, mentally in our thoughts, and even bodily in the resurrection, that these lowly bodies would be conformed to his glorious body, Philippians chapter 3. And remember, what Colossians has been teaching us from the beginning is that what God wants for his creation, right, his purpose and this whole massive project is for Christ to be all in all. That the entire universe would be draped in the image of Christ as the waters cover the sea. Now, for us, right, coming from that cosmic scale down to our lives, that's thrilling, but also kind of terrifying. And the reason is because God will not stop in our lives till he gets what he wants. I am confident of this very thing, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That means that you and I, us compromised, us sinful creatures, will become like Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis Lewis speaking about this, imagines Christ saying these words to us. If you let me, I will make you perfect. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, 
as he said, he was well pleased with me. Terrifying, as I said. But take heart. Things are hard, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you. Things are hard, but they're supposed to be. If God's call upon our lives was anything less than Christ in you, the hope of glory, things would be easier. It wouldn't be so hard. Trying to obey God's will wouldn't be so difficult. But easier is not always better. We have been put enlisted in God's gymnasium that we might become like Christ. So let's not be surprised when he puts us to the test. All discipline for the moment seems to be sorrowful, we are told in Hebrews. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. After all the training, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Uh, there's a book came out not too long ago called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And in that book, he tries to get to the bottom of an ongoing problem in our culture, and that is extended adolescence, um, not being able to grow up, in other words. It seems that the path to adulthood in our culture is getting longer. The goalposts are being moved back further and further. And Hyde identifies three great untruths that keep us locked in patterns of immaturity, right? That prevent us from growing up into well-functioning adults. Now, the first uh, untruth is the untruth of fragility. And this essentially means that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, right? So we need to protect ourselves from these things. The second untruth is that of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings, in other words. And the third untruth is the one of us versus them. Life is a battle between good and evil people, right? No gray. These, he says... These three things, untruths, and I think we can agree, stunt our growth by creating an environment that is too comfortable, too easy for maturity to happen. Sheltered, coddled, right, uh, the name of his book, from the rough and tumble of life, our sharper edges are never shaved down. But Height goes still further, and he, he wants to provide us with symptoms of this immaturity, Signs that we can diagnose ourselves by to see if, in fact, we are captured by these three untruths. I'm sorry you can't see that, but the first one reads, um, emotional reasoning. This is one symptom. Letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. The second is the word catastrophizing. Focusing on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as the most likely. Overgeneralizing. Perceiving a global pattern of negatives based on a single incident. Dichotomous thinking. Viewing events or people in all or nothing terms. Labeling. Assigning globally negative, pattern, uh, globally negative traits to yourself or others, often in service of dichotomous thinking. Mind reading. 
assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts, negative filtering, focusing almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom noticing the positives, and the last, discounting the positives, claiming that the positive things you or others do are trivial so that you can maintain a negative judgment. So there's Height's portrait of an immature person. How are you holding up? Um, But again, he's getting at something quite pervasive in our culture. Whether we agree with his symptoms or not is that of our relative inability to create mature adults. Now, the scriptures, on the other hand, have their own assessment of human immaturity. We're all called to grow up into the image of Christ. And when that's not happening, the scriptures say this is something of what it looks like. And it's called being in the flesh. I cannot speak to you as spiritual men, Paul says to the Corinthians, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. An immature person, in other words, is one who has not grown up into a spiritual person, but someone who has remained pampered on the flesh, right? Living, even though they profess Christ, according to the old ways. I gave you milk to drink, he continues. says 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. One sign of an immature believer is an inability to handle deep teaching. That is, to chew it and digest it. Now, it's fine to start with a bottle, right? We all do. But not to stay there. One needs to take things on that are a little harder to get down. But Paul goes on. We do speak wisdom to the Corinthians, but among those who are mature. Another sign of immaturity is just mere worldly thinking. Seeing things according to the categories of human wisdom and not according to the cross of Christ. In other words, an undeveloped spiritual aptitude. You have yet to see things as as God says they are, and instead you're seeing things as, well, someone else, the culture, your own mind is saying the way things are. But he continues still with the Corinthians. He says, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not acting like mere men? Probably the greatest symptom of immaturity in our lives is constant conflict. That is, being determined by pride and jealousy. In this case, one has failed to learn that most basic aspect of discipleship, which is self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me, right? Step number one. Hence, there's peace when one gets their way, when they have it as they want it, but there's bitter conflict when they don't get their way, when they don't get what they want. These are signs of immaturity, and there are many more that the Scripture provides us. Now, I bring this up not to condemn, but to provide us with something to measure our lives by. In comparison to other people, we're not doing so bad. 
Right? There's always someone worse off than I am. But in comparison to Christ, the only standard that counts, well, well, yeah, right? We've got some way to go. Our maturity, even among the most mature, is not where it ought to be. And that distance between us, right, between where we find ourselves and ultimately where God is leading us is not meant to discourage, but to spur us along. Because, and I think this is obvious to all of us, we can get too comfortable. Right? God can knock off the rough edges. He can eliminate those really bad things. And then we think, okay, I'm doing good. But he wants to go further. Christ did not die that we might be nice and polite people, but that we would be perfect in righteousness and holiness. There's much work to be done in our lives, a great destiny that lies ahead of each and every one of us. Christ in you. Think about these words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the encouragement is to put your hands to the plow and to not look back to see this vision of where God is leading you in your life, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and to go after it with all your might. That's a theme we'll come back to, but I want to turn now specifically to our passage. This path to maturity that I've been talking about, to growing up into the image of Christ, it can be obstructed. We can fall short of it. Even derailed, the apostle says, by something he calls here in verse 2, persuasive argument. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now, in its context, what we have here is a reference to some teaching that was making its way around the area, right? Around um, Colossae, where these particular believers were located. Now, the NIV, its translation of this verse is probably more preferable because rather than persuasive argument, it reads fine-sounding argument. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with fine-sounding argument. And that does a better job at capturing the tricky or the scheming element in the apostle's description of these teachers. I say this so that no one will delude you. Again, the connotation is being led astray, of being fooled and deceived. And what it pictures, on the other side of things, is someone quite good with their words, able to mislead people with fine-sounding rhetoric, without having the substance to back it up, more heat than light. Hence the other warning in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. The threat, in other words, is that the Colossians, this young church, would be duped by the empty words of sly teachers, enticed by persuasion and great promises. And it's this kind of thing, right, fine-sounding words, that the Apostle Paul himself refused to do. Rather than come in superiority of speech, 1 Corinthians 2, he preached instead Christ and him crucified. The ornamentation is not necessary. 
It might even be a distraction because the power is not in the fancy speech. The power is not in the persuasive words and the demonstration. The power is in the message. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, the Colossians were being tempted to turn away from something real and life-changing, right? With a message that genuinely, in all its humble exterior, a crucified Lord, that genuinely has the power to change for something empty, something that was concealed under the wraps of fine-sounding speech, something that ultimately... It couldn't change. What it had going for it was the words of these particular teachers. And for the Colossians to take this turn, right, to to go along with what was being said would be to short-circuit their maturity. Again, they would be misled, deluded into taking some other path, not according to their destiny in Christ. And so for us, right, the word is, is... It's so very clear. There are ways in this world, ways of human living, that are contrary to who we are becoming in Christ. Certain roads that, if we took them, would lead us to becoming something quite other than what God intends for us. We must see to it, the Apostle says. Right to, to be on your guard, to be diligent about this, that we don't take these roads, right? That we don't somehow find ourselves walking on another path that will lead us away from Christ's likeness. Now, while we are not facing the persuasion and argument of these particular teachers, there is a kind of persuasion and a kind of argument that we are up against, Right? It's not so much explicit false teaching that we're constantly facing. Now, we do from time to time, right? Those strange men who come knocking on your doors. Um, that happens, but it, it's more subtle than that. And what I'm thinking here of is primarily our media consumption, right? has, which has become such an um, indispensable element of modern life. And I want you to consider for a moment that in everything that comes to us filtered through a screen, there is an implicit or hidden argument that's being made about what is good and about how we ought to live, right? Something is being fed to us. Something is being sold to us in all the media that we consume. And it's like these teachers at Colossae with their fine-sounding words leading us down another path. Kevin Van Hooser, he says um, in his article, Discipleship in the Age of Spectacle, the following, The vocation of discipleship is learning to view our world with biblical categories and then learning to live into that reality. So what he's saying is that discipleship is all about letting the scriptures determine the way we see the world right? Biblical categories, right? Learning these so that the scriptures are almost a lens that we put over our eyesight. And everything in the world is filtered to us through, to us through this lens. And it says, and then learning to live into that, right? 
learning to act out this biblical script. He says, the challenge at the present is knowing how to do that in a culture of spectacle, where images of the good life or worldly success, fame, riches, power, tend to colonize our imaginations and lead us to idolize them in our hearts. So what he's saying is that essentially we don't view the world as the Bible describes it, but as our culture would describe it, as the media would describe it. We're given these images of the good life or worldly success, and he says that they take over the way that we view the world and that we idolize them in our hearts, and so that we're acting out a different script. And here we have the same program as the teachers at Colossae. The substance is not the matter, really, but getting us to buy into, to put stock into a particular vision of what life should be, of what the good life would be. An image is presented to us, an argument is being made that this is what it's all about, this is how life should be lived. Being your authentic self, right, no matter the cost. Never denying your desires or emotions. Pursuing material comfort and success above all other things. Images are fed to us, and Van Hooser says they colonize our imaginations. They shape the way we view the world. They shape the way we see people, our interactions, and subsequently the way that we live in the world. Um, One uh, poet, he put it this way, a picture held us captive and we could not get outside it. A picture held us captive and we could not get outside it, meaning that whatever vision of what our lives should be is, right? Whatever it is when we think about, this is what I want my life to be, it dominates our thoughts. And if we're not careful, it can become the only thing that we can see, such that everything is filtered through that lens. And these fine-sounding arguments or images delude us, and they take us captive, and they lead us down a path away from genuine maturity in Christ. Again, this is essentially what modern media is, the presentation, not to say indoctrination, of certain images of what is good, of what we should be. So let me ask you a question. What is your vision of the good life? At the end of the road, (laughs) at the end of the road, we'll take questions later. Um, At the end of the road, what is it? What, what, What would that be? If you could have anything you wanted, what would you want it to be? Sort that out, right? That's a hard question to answer. Um, I'm not going to ask you, but then let me ask you another question. Where did that vision come from? Where did you get that particular vision for the good life? right, of where you want to be. Very likely, especially if you're younger, it was from some sort of media, a film or a TV series or social media or whatever. These images are presented to us. This is what life is going to be. They capture our mind and our imagination, and then they determine our lives. Now, being overly susceptible to these image arguments is a sign of immaturity in our lives. Look at um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro 
and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see, a child cannot cut through the fine-sounding arguments to see the emptiness that is, in fact, within them. A child is overawed by the glitz and glamour, and hence, it's tossed to and fro. It lacks the stability and consistency of a full-grown adult who can say, no, in fact, this is the way, and we are not going to deviate from it. We must grow up, the apostle says, realizing that so much of the images that hold us captive are delusions, that they're not according to Christ, verse 8. We have aimed ourselves so many times at merely fleshly ends, right? Merely aims that come from the world, pursuing paths that stop short of being made into the image of Christ. And so what we need, again, this isn't a prescription for everybody, but certainly for some, is good old-fashioned fasting. That's fasting from the media, fasting from everything that is fed to us through our screens. Our minds need time away from the constant bombardment of images and content. Because if not, our desires, again, are going to be led away by fine-sounding arguments. Right? A good detox is in order to restore clarity of mind and your volition. I can sense when this is happening to me, um, I sit in front of a computer all day, and so I can sense when this is starting to take place. And then I tell my wife, all right, I just need to get away from the TV, from all this other stuff so that I can get my mind back and I can think <laughs> biblically again. And that media, right, it needs to be replaced by the scriptures, like Van Hooser was talking about, so that you can see things rightly, and then you can act rightly. Because there in the scriptures, you're going to be taught to desire what God desires for you, and that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the first step to becoming mature in Christ. Uh, We'll come back to this, that you desire it. You have to desire it. You have to want it. And that's very hard to do when we're taking down as much screen time as we are. Anyway, moving on. In our weakest moments, um, in those times of maybe we're out of fellowship or whatever, we can give in, right? Believing that these fine-sounding arguments are indeed the real thing. That, That what they promise is in fact what they deliver. Now, the Apostle Paul wants to just shake us free from that delusion, right, into kind of being like the children of Israel and wanting to go back to Egypt, right, wanting to go back to that old life and thinking that was better. Paul wants to shake us free. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So he slings these titles at the teachers in their system, summarizing it all as, according to the elementary principles of the world. Right? That's the key, because that's the biggest term that he gives it there. 
And that phrase, the elementary principles of the world, is dense with meaning. And it's also a concept that's foreign to our modern mind. So what we want to do here is just bypass all the theology behind that term and deal with things on more practical grounds. Now, whatever the elementary principles of the world are, they are elementary. That is, they're basic. They're childish. They're, they're for beginners. And other than Colossians, the only place where this phrase is used again, the elementary principles or elementary things, is in Galatians. And I want to take you there now to get a better handle on what we're dealing with. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 of Galatians, the Apostle Paul says this, Now, I say, as long as an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held under bondage in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So the elementary principles or the elemental things, whatever they are, are connected to childhood. He says, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things. So the elementary principles that the Apostle Paul is warning the Colossians about are, he says, they're appropriate for children. They're like toys or or training wheels, right? It's something a child does but not an adult. And he provides us with an analogy in our verse, and it's that of a, a child awaiting their inheritance when they can be finally given the family estate. And when adulthood comes and it's time to receive the inheritance, childish things, the elementary principles, are put away. They're put away. And he goes on. Now, the time of adulthood has come for every one of us, no matter your age, no matter your station in life, in Christ. He continues. Now, verse 7, 4 through 7. He says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a, a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We have been adopted by the Father through His Son, the Apostle says. Hence, we are no longer slaves. That is, we're no longer in that position under the elementary things of the world. We've received our inheritance. We are sons now, and we are heirs. We have, in other words, become grown-ups. That's what he's saying. So he's telling the Galatians, is what he's telling the Colossians. We're grown up now. It's time to graduate from the kids' table at Thanksgiving and come sit with the adults. It's time to leave childish things behind. But the Galatians, the Galatians want to remain children. Look at verses 8 and 9. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all again? He says you're going back. You've been brought to maturity in Christ. You've been made a son and an heir of God. And you want to return to the elementary principles. 
Again, this is the same danger confronting the Colossians. To go along with the program of these false teachers would be to turn back the clock. It would be to remain in an undeveloped and infantile state. And here's what we must recognize about the worldly images that capture us. Right? Those visions of life that compete with Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that they're childish. These ways of life that are being sold to us are immature. They're forms of living that are hardly appropriate for full-grown adults. And they fall short, vastly short, of what a human being ought to be. Now, they have an outward appeal, right? Certainly. But they have no substance. They are, in fact, as Paul says in verse 8, empty deceptions. God desires more for us. Not that we'd remain children forever. And he has brought that maturity to us in Christ. Christ, we can say, is the only true adult. Right? He's the measure of maturity. And our path to maturity can only come through him. We must grow up. Right? We must no longer be children into him who is the head into Christ. So God has delivered us from the old ways, right? these old elementary things, and we must see them now for what they are. And on the other hand, we must see Christ for who he is. The fullness, as the apostle has already said. He is the truth, Jesus Christ, about God and creation. He's the fullness of both. Together, God and creation are summed up in him. Hence, he's the mystery in verse 2. Jesus is the mystery. Verse 3, Colossians uh, 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? The old ways that constantly try to draw us back, they stop short of the ultimate truth. They are according to the elementary principles. God, on the contrary, invites us into maturity. He weans us off of empty deceptions in the tradition of men, and he opens up to us the storehouses of wisdom and knowledge. So what we have here is a summons to recognize the riches that we have in Christ. Whatever alternative, whatever it promises, it can only keep us trapped in childhood. It can only undermine our potential. We are called from the shallows, from the elementary things, to the fullness of Christ, to genuine human maturity in Him. And when we recognize that, that Christ is the only route to maturity, this leads to an unwillingness to entertain anything else. What does any of us have to do with empty shadows, with vain deception, when one has the substance, when one has the fullness? That's what Paul's trying to tell the Colossians here. You guys are going after the elementary things, these small childish things when God has revealed to you in Christ the fullness. When he's given you, uh, opened up to you the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's nowhere else to go. It's all in Christ. He's the sum of everything. So genuine maturity is in him. So now drawing things to a close here, I want to focus on Christ himself. He is the fullness. 
I don't want us to have a view of Christ where we think of him primarily as a moral teacher or a founder of a religion. The scriptures say he is the fullness. There is a superabundance in him, a height and depth which exceeds all imagination. So rather than progressing from one thing to another, maturity, right, genuine Christian maturity is a matter of pressing deeper into what we've already been given. It's all there at the beginning, right? It's all there in Christ. Now, if Christ were not the fullness, and he was merely derivative or secondhand, then we might expect things to look different. Christ might get us in the door, but then it's time to move on to bigger and better things, right? We'd always love him for getting us in, for dying for us, that we could enter the kingdom of God, but that's as far as he could take us if he were not the fullness. We'd have to move on if we wanted to be mature, right? We'd have to leave Christ behind, if not explicitly, implicitly, to other things, to the law, to charismatic experience, or to whatever. That's genuine Christian maturity, right? Christ gets us in, and then we move on to other things. Now, such thinking, as common as it is, is a terrible mistake. It's God's purpose, remember, that Christ would have the first place in everything. If there is any so-called progress to be had, and it's not progress into Christ, then it's not progress at all. It doesn't matter what it is. It can even be something biblical. If it's divorced from him who is the fullness, then it's empty and bankrupt, and it won't lead you to maturity. It will only be more empty deception. And so let me just put it in plain terms. There is no growth for you that is not also growth into Christ. The two go hand in hand. We cannot sidestep or ignore or marginalize him and obtain anything that is worthwhile in our faith. He is the center of it all, the first place in everything. So your maturity as a believer is directly and absolutely bound up with your relationship with Christ. Absolutely. And if our hearts are cold toward him, then just the simple fact is that genuine maturity is not possible. Now, you can maybe reform certain things in your life, but that's not what we're talking about here. God's vision for us is not simply, okay, become nice and better people. Just do away with the major things. It's to make us perfect into the image of Christ. And that sort of maturity cannot ever, ever, ever be accomplished without Christ. So whatever this passage is, it's a summons for each and every one of us to put Christ at the center of our lives. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So here's how the apostle puts it, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. The entirety of our lives, in this age and the next, can be summed up in that one phrase, walk in Him. That simply is the Christian life. 
That's what we're doing. It's an unceasing walk deeper and deeper into the mystery of Christ. And Paul gives us three images of how that walk should go. Firmly rooted is the first. It pictures us like a tree or a plant, extending our roots deep into Christ, drawing from his fullness all the nutrients we need. Built up is the second. And it styles Christ as the foundation upon which we are built. And we, the building, being raised up on that solid ground. He provides the necessary stability on which we can build mature lives. And the last is established, and it refers to a codified legal document. Our efforts, indeed our entire lives, are legitimized in Christ. So again, the one unmistakable thing is that Christ is the heart of the entire process. We grow up, we are built up, and we are established in him. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's almost an invite, an open door for you to venture deeper. The treasures that we all apparently long for are not resting on the surface, but they are hidden. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have to go looking. We have to go exploring to obtain that which we desire. And that's what one does for treasure, right? The allure and the promise of it drives someone to give up almost anything to have what they want. Think of the pearl of great price. And so again, there lies the genuine key to this entire process of maturity. One has to desire Christ as one would desire treasure or riches. The journey deeper remains a fiction until our desire is ignited, propelling us forward. Because, and I want to come around full circle now to what we mentioned at the beginning, the process of maturity is incredibly difficult. Being conformed into the image of Christ is the hardest thing that any one of us has ever done or ever will do. It requires sacrifice and humility and painstaking effort. It's a a road that one cannot remain on very long if they do not desire the prize that awaits them at the end of the road. It's too hard. One must desire perfection. And more importantly, the one who is perfection, Christ. I'll leave you with the Apostle Paul's words on the matter. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, communion is the right place to stir up our desire once again for Christ. Because here, we commune with Him. So as we partake... Let me invite you to pray for, to seek after that same desire. I press toward the goal for the prize, the upward call 
of God in Christ Jesus. So please come receive the elements. Um, Take them back to your tables and spend that time with the Lord and I'll lead us in just a moment.